Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Goodwill Hunters. Today, I'm chatting to Chris Croker. Chris is a Luridja man from Central Australia and the Managing Director of Impact Investment Partners. Chris created an impact investment fund that aims to empower Indigenous Australians. Chris is passionate about closing the gap for Indigenous Australians through impact investing by building infrastructure that gives investors a good return while giving Indigenous communities access to clean water and healthcare. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, so um, as we said uh, before we started, I think a really nice place to start this conversation would be um, reflecting on your own upbringing and experience being a part of an Indigenous community and and how that led you um, down the path of the career you have today. So could you share some some of your experiences in those early days? Oh, definitely. Um, So I'm um, born and raised in the Northern Territory, my father's English, but, but on my mother's side, we're um, Luridja people from the Central Desert. Um, if anyone's ever visited uh, Uluru and Wadaka or Kings Canyon, Kings Canyon is actually where my um, family um, used to live and actually still live. There's a number of Luridja people residing in the area in the Kings Canyon National Park or in areas around there. Um, so, yes, I, I grew up, you know, um, um, between Darwin, Alice Springs and Luridja country near Kings Canyon. Um, I'm, I'm one of 11 brothers and sisters. So um, family and community was always, a, you know, a big part. You know, we didn't think twice about um, the way that we grew up and participated in life, but it's um, definitely, um, you know, Aboriginal community language and culture is, you know, very strong in my um, family. Some people may um, know that um, with the Central Desert Aboriginal communities, um, you know, culture and tradition and law, Aboriginal law or Anano law, um, is um, still, you know, very strong today. 
um, despite, you know, colonisation and dispossession um, that's occurred. Um, so, yeah, um, I've grown up and lived um, Aboriginal cultural uh, in the Central Desert, and that's then, you know, when I've moved out of the Northern Territory, largely to go to university, um, you know, automatically connected with the local Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander groups uh, around the country. Um, I've always worked in business, um, actually in the mining industry first off, um, where, uh, you know, one of the, the main social programs that I always did when I was working on mining mining operations was to look at active ways to engage with local community um, either through, you know, sponsorship or employment and training or business creation. So, um, yeah, you know, through a long and winding career, that's like landed me, um, you know, being being somewhat ideal for focusing on impact investments or social investments um, that are of benefit to Aboriginal communities. Um one thing that I I always say is that you know well I'm I'm from the Northern Territory and a lot of people associate you know Aboriginal cultural identity with the Northern Territory, but actually um, you know our biggest Aboriginal populations aren't actually in the Northern Territory they're in our metro cities. Um, so New South Wales has the is the the state with the highest Aboriginal population. Um, the single largest Aboriginal cultural group is actually in Perth, um, the Noongar people. Um, and, of course, Victoria has, uh, I think, something like double the number of Aboriginal people live in Victoria as in the whole of the Northern Territory. So um, Aboriginal culture and community persuades Australia and Aboriginal people have survived and flourished. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of um, opportunities to work on positively together. I'm interested in the point at which you realised that the way services were being delivered to Indigenous communities wasn't working? Because I assume that's a realisation you had that led you down this path. I think anyone that has a first-hand appreciation of, you know, social services or Aboriginal, Torres Strait Island Indigenous services, you know, would realise very, very quickly that, um, you know, the approaches or the mechanisms or the groups that work with um, community groups it, it it's very very dysfunctional um, and it's not you know you know growing up amongst it, it, it that dysfunction not just not not in the Aboriginal community you know per se but in the whole environment it becomes obvious straight away um, like you see it and it becomes so you know, every, every day that, um, you know, it, you just accept that this whole, you know, dysfunction or inadequacy of social services is actually actually the norm. Um, I, I don't quite often quote Noel Pearson, but Noel has this famous quote, and I do know, not, I know Noel Pearson personally, um, having, you know, had many conversations over the years. Um, he he has this quote that whatever the um, underlying political persuasion or, you know, the social support persuasion is of, of the day, the right answer for Aboriginal people 
is normally 180 degrees opposite from what that underlying view is. Um, that's, you know, just the generally accepted view that, well, what's going on? You know, it's really actually may be supporting the disadvantage um, rather than addressing disadvantage. Yeah, but that's very, very – that's a political <laughs> um, yeah. and very, um, you know, a prerogative um, point of view. But, you know, um, I am saying, you know, um, Aboriginal people, you know, got, um, you know, rights, um, you know, recognised um, as um, Australian people, um, you know, going back a good um, 40 years. And, you know, the federal government annually expends – I think the latest figure that I saw a couple of weeks ago was $4.6 billion on Indigenous affairs – um, there's not that many Aboriginal people across the country, um, you know, between 500 and 600,000, um, including all the all the children. That's a lot of money <laughs> to be expended on Aboriginal affairs programs annually, and still actually have no positive change in our closing the gap measures. Um, it's it's a really interesting point, and and I think as you've said there, until you've actually lived and worked and become really familiar with Indigenous communities, it is hard to understand why you know why service delivery is inadequate. Um, I know I certainly agree that it's inadequate, but I would struggle to explain what it is that, about the services um, that isn't working. So can you can you illustrate that with an example? Say something like healthcare. Because I think we need to understand the problem before we discuss the fantastic solution um, that you've pioneered. Yeah, so so maybe a, a easier discussion, uh, an easy ex, ex, example is around, you know, this whole field around um, education support, training support, and you know, employment pathways. If you cast your eye to any you know regional town that has, you know, a sizable Aboriginal population. Um, there's literally dozens of organisations, both government, not-for-profit and Aboriginal or community-led, that are all working on supporting Aboriginal students through school, supporting Aboriginal people through, you know, employment um, pathways, you know, the Centrelink and the JSA Job Services Australia type models, which which are available to to all disadvantaged people and all un, unemployed people. One of the towns near um, Melbourne, um, Shepparton. When I uh, going back a few years ago, I was working on did a project on behalf of um, uh, the old um, Department of Faxia, um, which is you know that included an the portfolio for in Indigenous affairs. So I did a lot of work up in um, Shepparton around um, employment pathways and employment of Aboriginal people into um, the jobs that are in the region. There was something like 36 organisations working with a community of only about, probably would have only been about 500 working age adults Um you know, true, the Aboriginal community as a whole, is, there's about like 5,000 people, but, you know, excluding the children and the, the non-working age and also the ones that aren't actively participating in uh, in the workforce. Um, and, you know, and these organisations are all well-resourced. Um, some would, you know, some would say, well, they're not resourced enough, 
but we end up um you know having this some some people say that there's a you know a, a market for in selling indigenous disadvantage seems in i'm saying and you know um, i remember reading um just a couple of years ago there's you know a famous you know stories or case studies around a remote aboriginal town um or a town that has a high aboriginal population in in western australia um, and that's roeburn um in a very very small town but you know high aboriginal population there's there's more organizations than on that um working with even a even a smaller population um so even though that there's a lot of effort going on the you know the quality of not just su- support because it, it it goes beyond that it's kind of like creates a a cycle of hopelessness because you know it hasn't you know had these people in the past um come in and say well we can we can work Oh, first originally saying, well, we know what's what's best for you. <laughs> um, trust us, um, and then over the years, that's changed to, well, we know best how to work with you. Um, trust us, and then you know various organisations, you know, come in and out, and you know, really, um, you know, unless there's things that that substantially change, you know, really, you know, all, you know, not not all, but a lot of that support. Um, and you know, effort—it's—it's it's largely wasted. Yeah, this is really yeah. interesting. Would would I be oversimplifying to say that that it's not a lack of money and it's not a lack of organisations working in the space, but it's about the quality and effectiveness of those resources as opposed to the scarcity of resources? That's the problem. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, and yeah, definitely. It's you know, there's. There's no shortage of um you know resources. The the the, the four point four and a half billion that I mentioned that's just the federal government spend. Um, then there's state governments, there's local governments, there's private private um corporations, there's you know family offices, social impact groups, there's not for profits. That's all on top of that um, federal government allocation. Okay, so there's a lot of money going into this space, but it's not being spent effectively, which is the reason why we're really struggling to close the gap and meet the targets that we've set for Indigenous communities. That's the context that I'm understanding. Have I understood that correctly? That's right. Okay, and so why is impact investment a solution to that problem? You know, there's there's definitely some issues that can't be addressed through um, impact investment. So I'd like to make that clear. And the classic one is around political rights. Um, you know, um, political rights actually require a political and legislative um, solution. But then there's a whole bunch of um, initiatives, social impact or social services that actually... Um, you know, can be addressed through an impact investment style model. Um, and this basically comes back, back to that, you know, well, no matter where you go, you know, right across the country and, you know, one of the, the, the most urban Aboriginal communities is in inner city um, Sydney, um, in Redfern. Um, so, you know, they've got, you know, ready access to, you know, all the opportunities in Australia and, and in the world. But still, you know, quite chronic disadvantage, you know, and persists today. So, 
I would say um, the impact investment models, depending on, you know, your natural persuasion, you know, know, there's a whole field of, um, you know, social bonds where, you know, organisations get incentivised for the social impact that they're having. Social bonds are one type of impact investments. In a lot of cases, there's actually missing services or missing infrastructure, social infrastructure that, that's missing from Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities. And you would say, well, you know, how, how can that be possible if there's all this financial allocation coming in? But, of course, those financial allocations um, are tied to certain policy positions or, um, you know, donor perceptions of what the, the answer is. So you still have quite a lot of um, need or really disadvantage falling through the gap. So, and, and the classic one is, um, you know, with um, social housing. So, um, you know, not just Aboriginal um, communities um, experience, um, you know, I'm homeless as and not enough housing and overcrowding. But, you know, there's, you know, that's was well known that, um, you know, Australia, you know, has, you know, quite a large homeless um, population spread across all of our um, cities um, which really shouldn't be there because, you know, Australia is, you know, such a wealthy country. We've got so much land. We've got so much resources, you know, um, that surely we should should have a solution that's applicable, that applies to even our, you know, most disadvantaged group of um, people. So with um, impact investments in, in um, Aboriginal communities, um, you know, you know, say that you know there there are some of these missing infrastructure or social services that are that are missing in communities, and you know, I I point my finger at you know, if communities were in control or had a say in how the education system for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities was run or delivered, then we sh- should have a better education outcome. Um, if we had a more active uh, role to play in health delivery or health services, then um, we should get better health outcomes. Um, and, you know, um, and the same with um, social housing. Um, you know, if, if we didn't, if money wasn't constrained that, f- that was flowing into social housing, surely we should have, you know, an excess of public housing that we actually always have houses available for those those in need um, of, you know, some form. But I say, and I've seen this firsthand, you know, quite often, well, you know, the even the wider community gets engaged in, you know, the location of a new hospital or a, a school as, you know, external stake or community stakeholders. And it's the same for the Aboriginal people as well. But really, um, someone else, either a private developer or a, or a, health, organ, a, a health company, um, or um, a government agency has already decided where's the best location and what's the best type of hospital to unbuild, which, you know, then is little wonder why, you know, marginalised groups within the community, you know, aren't actively, you know, um, receiving the benefits of that infrastructure investment, a, a new hospital, because it wasn't actually designed to, in, to to include them. It was designed for the average um, so the, the um, average community. Um, 
Yeah, but that's a really th- good point. And, and I would partly put that down to leadership, right, is that we, we don't have enough people with a lived experience of being Indigenous in leadership positions where they can kind of be involved from the start. Definitely. You know, um, well, you know, it goes back, you know, really, you know, Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islanders, we've only been treated as, you know, equals, you know, for the last 40 odd years. So we've got a, a, you know, a lot to catch up on. Um, so we don't have enough, um, you know, leaders or influencers, you know, actively working in, you know, ensuring, yeah, when there's a public school being built in, I, I live in a suburb um, in the inner west of Melbourne, um, when there's a new public school getting built, and there's a few getting built now, um, but, you know, we don't have the academics or the teaching professionals or even the community leaders saying, well, actually, yeah, if we, you know, design that school a little bit differently or something, um, it would actually be, be more inclusive. So then actually our kids would feel more welcoming going, going to the school. Yeah, we just we don't don't have those people, and because you know there's a lot of social injustice issues in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Any of our professionals, you know, our you know new newly developed leaders, they tend to you know be drawn into what they see as the main impact areas. You know, um, social work, healthcare, uh, child protection, uh, justice workers. Which, which is really good, definitely, but, you know, that's, they're, you know, working up or doing a lot of their work in intervention or crisis prevention rather than in, you know, future planning around, you know, how do we have more vibrant communities and uh, business leaders or even political leaders. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to talk specifically about the fund that you launched, which is the Indigenous Infrastructure Investment Fund, the goal of the fund was to, or is to raise $500 million uh, and invest over the next five years across 15 to 20 direct investments. And I understand that there is an intent to work with Indigenous investors as well as socially and environmentally minded investors. So you've only launched this in the last sort of six to 12 months, is that correct? Yeah, so we've only really launched the fund in April this year, but we had about a 12-month development before then where we engaged with Indigenous community, Indigenous investors, socially-minded investors, you know, the um, financial industry as a whole um, to kind of craft what would be the investment the most likely to see succeed investment product um so there was a lot of pre-work um but we've only just recently launched so we went and um you know raised some early um investment from a number of um family officers or you know socially minded investors um so that's been really good um and then our next um push is to actually go and um convert bring in some of the Indigenous investors or foundations and trusts um, that are around the country to bring them into the fund as well. We've already, you know, been engaging with them for, you know, a number of months, number of years. And then also having early discussions with the large-scale institutional investors that uh, either have a really strong infrastructure mandate 
or a strong um, impact, social impact mandate as well. That's really interesting. So, so five hundred million dollars. The goal is is approximately one eighth of the total federal government expenditure on Indigenous communities. So, it's it's a really substantive amount of money. Is your intention that over time this sort of funding will gradually replace federal government funding, or do you see them as being complementary? No, they're definitely well. It potentially we could. Um, get some efficiency gains for the federal government budget allocation. Um, but my view is that, you know, that money is well needed um, and it would just should be redirected into other other initiatives, other other areas. Um, like one of the th- – we've, we've got, um, you know, communities and um, community groups and not-for-profits, they – and we have many discussions with them around, well, what's needed in their particular community and what are the issues and what are the opportunities. Um, and definitely not all of those issues or needs and opportunities are addressable through, our, you know, an impact investment or any type of investment lens. They, you know, just just require, um, you know, more grass a grassroots action or a government action rather than a, you know, a, a, a dual-purpose social Im- impact action. But there's there's a si- significant number of opportunities, you know, spread across Australia, spread across a number of in- types of investments that really, um, you know, we, we're, we're focusing on getting the $500 million fund, but really that would, you know, wouldn't even, you know, make a dent in the total addressable um, infrastructure shortages in Aboriginal communities. Infrastructure Australia, Infrastructure Australia is, you know, the federal government agency that, you know, helps the federal government and state governments plan their major infrastructure investments. Um, and I think in the latest report, they um, were quoted um, as saying that, um, you know, unless the unless governments, you know, started investing in the infrastructure requirement for Indigenous communities, there was no way we were going to address or close the gaps. Um, There's just so many, you know, issues um, that, um, you know, working on better policy or better service delivery you know, we, that's basically, you know, that's the, the first, that's the band-aid solution rather than addressing some of the underlying causes. And, of course, the causes are, you know, of disadvantage are, you know, wide and varied. But, you know, I always say, you know, if unless someone has a safe place to sleep, um, safe drinking water um, and, you know, good food and electricity, there's, you know, what happens to their education or employment prospects or their health, you know, are really, you know, you know, way down on the list. You know, you're too busy focusing on, you know, is your is your home, um, is your family going to be safe? Um, you know, we do have a roof over our head um, to really worry about the what's happening next year or tomorrow. And as you've as you've said, there the fund is looking to invest across 
15 to 20 direct investments, that $500 million doesn't even, you know, it doesn't scrape, it doesn't fix the problem. That's not the ceiling. That's not the, just that $500 million and every problem is solved. But is there, is there a particular investment of those 15 to 20 possible direct investments that you're really keen to get started on? Like, can you give us an example of something that the fund would look to invest in? Yeah, definitely. So um, I was going to say, you know, that there's, you know, of course, there's a range of opportunities, um, which we've, um, over the last five years, have been working with um, um, state governments and also Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities around a whole lot of um, uh, social needs and then business cases to address some of those social needs. So there's a range of, you know, things that we could focus on. We've wanted to narrow it down a little bit by saying that there's loosely three types of investments that we think um, can make significant social difference, but are also, um, you know, practically achievable, one with the resources that we have, and then also with the technology that we have. And one of the first area is... um, uh, improving the energy reliability, electricity reliability in the remote towns in northern Australia with the view that um, well, a lot of towns have issues with their electricity supply. Um, one, it's very costly, it's not reliable, um, and it's you know typically diesel-powered. So that brings its whole a whole lot of other reliability issues. There's, these towns are remote. You know, there's long supply chains to get the diesel in, long supply chains to get the technicians in, the mechanics to keep their, their generators running. Um, so we've been working with an, a number of communities around um, investing in uh, uh, renewable energy, a solar hybrid solution to basically replace the diesel, the traditional generator with a more, you know, environmentally friendly but um, fundamentally more Lower, lower cost and more reliable energy source with the view there, you know, you know, improving the electricity supply, one will free up funds, which are currently being overspent on the diesel supply, um, to be allocated to other social projects, other social needs, but also having reliable electricity has a direct impact in the provision of the supply of um, uh, safe um, potable drinking water. Um, the water typically needs to be treated um, for a whole range of reasons, um, and it can only be treated if the electricity is running. So when the electricity is not running, the, it directly affects the water supply. Um, but also, you know, um, telecommunications are, um, are um, impacted when the electricity has issues, not just going out completely, but when voltage goes up and down and unfluctuates. Um, you know, affects the ability for the health organisations to um, provide health services. Education is affected and a whole range of different things get unlocked on. Um, families don't, um, you know, put a lot of um, fresh meat and vegetables into their refrigerators and or freezers because um, the electricity is going to go out every other day. So then that stuff needs to be thrown out. So it has a, you know, huge flow on effects. So that's the first area, um, investing in uh, basically renewable energy solutions for remote towns. 
The second one is more in the southeast of Australia, in Victoria, in New South Wales, where you know the basic services are already in a place: electricity, water, um, schooling systems, and the like. Um, but working with the community health organisations, which some people would refer to them as um, either community-controlled health organisations or Aboriginal medical services, um, to basically provide them with better health infrastructure so then they can deliver their health services to the community more efficiently and in a more holistic manner. Um, and, of course, the third bucket is just basically from time to time there will be, you know, high social impact initiatives that community bring to us that may be um, achievable through an Im- Im- impact investment lens. Um, so, so currently um, we are negotiating um, the, um, the, f- the final cost of um, investing in a renewable energy um, project in one of the remote one of the rural Western Australian towns um, that will, you know, um, you know, help provide um, more reliable power to that town, uh, but also importantly create a uh, pathway for local employment. Um, you know, um, local um, community members will be employed for the construction and um, be recruited into the maintenance cycle and keeping the facility running. Um, and then over on the East Coast, we are working with two Aboriginal medical services in different towns um, to provide new venues and new facilities. One, a smaller medical clinic, basically, that will have a couple of GPs and, and, a, and a nurse there in a community room um, to help the organisation um, expand their services that they're they providing to the community. And another one in another town... Um, taking a bit of a, you know, a super clinic style approach, having uh, a bigger facility that um, the Aboriginal Medical Service will, can provide their um, GP services and primary health services in, um, dent, you know, dental care and um, maternal health and the like, which they currently do really well. But on the in the same facility, um, having a Medicare um uh, office as well, so it can help with the coordination of, um, you know, um, family benefits and Medicare payments and the like, um, and also um, bringing in a, a suite of specialist doctors to um, to provide, you know, concurrent health delivery to the same community. So basically when a, uh, a family come in, a, um, a patient comes in, um, you know, they can then get their follow-up needs, follow-up um, health services um, seen to, you know, on that day rather than having to, you know, go across town to, to a chemist or go to a radiologist or whatever it is, but be just more efficient. And in in both of those cases, you know, we're basically playing a, a property investor landlord model. Uh, we're just basically... Um, building or buying a facility, refitting it, making it fit for purpose, more welcoming for the community, and then uh, there's a bit of efficiency gain there as well. But ultimately, you know, the the true hard hard work is still getting you know um, delivered by the community run organisations, but we're just making their job more 
a little easier to to you know provide those their services to the community. I think it's such an exciting model, and and I'm so looking forward to seeing how this unfolds in the coming years. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. No, thank you. That's um, it's been a great um chatting to you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.